Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. So, you're going to open your Bibles. Uh, we are in uh, Genesis. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and the ushers will put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't have one, take that Bible home. And we are going to be in Genesis. We're welcoming everybody online listening to us on the web or on the podcast. Uh, Welcome. We're glad you're listening to us tonight. You can open your Bibles to Genesis 25. We're going to cover 25, 26, and 27. And we are going to get through this. You might want to go out in the lobby and get that free cup of coffee. I don't want any of you falling asleep on me. By the way, if you come into any service now, grab a cup of coffee and you can bring it into the services and and it's free and you can even come early and fellowship with one another. We want to do that for you. So we're doing that. So, all right. Last week, we titled the teaching, Placing God in Your Marriage on Day One. And we were in chapter 24. And the recap is, here's one of the points, the takeaway points, in case you missed it. Placing God in our marriage means both husband and wife need to submit to God as head of their marriage. And so that really is the point of if we're submitting to God, then we can submit to one another. Now, it's not always easy. We all know that. But God is the center of our marriage. And our marriage was founded He was a covenant of our marriage, and we invited him in the center of the marriage, and so we want to keep him in the center of our marriage. And so uh, don't forget about that. If you did miss last week, we have a brand new uh, way to subscribe. You can subscribe to our Spotify or our Apple Play, and you can listen to all the Calvary Chapel Sebastian teachings there. So don't forget about that. You can go on and subscribe to that, all right? All right, well, before we begin this long journey of three chapters, I have a question for you, and I want you to be honest, and I want to remind you you're in church. Hey, Kathy, how are you? And so we've got this question, and you ready? Answer honestly, and we're going to ask you to raise your hand. Some of you are going to raise two hands. I already know it, right? But how many of you would say that you feel you were raised or brought up in a dysfunctional home? Let me see your hands. Wow. All right, help me out, Pastor Craig. I think that's about 85% of the room. 85% of the room. Really, I'm, my hands are both raised, too. Feet up, too, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for your honesty. Let's see if you're going to be honest with the next question. How many of you here would say that your own kids would say that they were brought up in an, a dysfunctional home? Oh, we're not as honest. Do I need to tell you what the definition of dysfunctional is? So those of you listening online, it's like maybe 20% of the room. So what did we do? Learn from our parents and we did better with our kids? Is that what we did? We did a little better. Yeah, how many of you think we did a little better? We learned. Yeah, yeah, life's about learning. Notice my wife had her hands up. All right. Pastor Craig, come up and finish. I'm no longer worthy to teach. I got to go take care of my kids at home and fix things. Well, listen, I've titled this teaching tonight, Taking the Dysfunction Out of Our Family. 
taking the dysfunction out of our family. And this is part one. We're going to have part two next Wednesday night, so you're going to want to come back. Now, you can follow along with your Bibles. We're going to begin in chapter 25, and I want to bring you up to date in the story from chapter 24 to chapter 25. And so you can just kind of mark or circle in your Bible in, in, in uh, verse 8, chapter 25, it said that Abraham uh, has died. He is now 175 years old, so he's now passed. And, and remember, Abraham had two sons. It was Ishmael and it was Isaac. And in verse 16, Ishmael, it says he had 12 sons. And these sons, they formed the 12 tribes, okay? And then in verse 18, it says that they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. Now, remember, remember back in Genesis when we were talking about this, that he said that Ishmael would have a rough life, that he wouldn't be as blessed and that he would always be in conflict. So this is, again, God's prophecy, and it's coming to fruition. And then in verse 17, it says that Ishmael lived to be 137 years old. Now, his brother Isaac in verse 20 Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Remember, he went back, the servant of Abraham went back to the homeland last week, found the woman because that's what Abraham wanted from his hometown, his homeland, and so found a woman. God did a miracle. God showed him and then brought, he wasn't to go and, and live there, his son, but the woman was to come back, and so we read that last week. Okay, so now... He's, he's, Isaac is now 40 years old. He's married to Rebekah. And then in verse 22, it says, Isaac prayed for Rebekah to become pregnant, and she became pregnant with twins. Now, I want you to know that there is a 20-year span from the time that they got married to the time where she got pregnant. That's why he was praying for his wife to become pregnant. And so now we are going to look at verse 23 is where we're kind of going to start and get into some meat of things because verse 23 is going to tie in and it's going, to, it's going to be huge for us to understand. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, meaning Rebecca, he says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older, who are they talking about? Esau. Okay, these are the twins that are going to be born. The older, which they called Esau, will serve the younger, which will be Jacob. Now, I want you to highlight that and underline that. And you, if you're a prophecy person and you're following prophecy, and you, you, prophecy is interesting to you. And by the way, Pastor Joey's in the book of Revelations, which is a lot of prophecy. This is a prophecy from God to Rebecca. So you can just put in your Bible right there, prophecy. So remember, what, it, what is prophecy, church? Well, I put it this way. Prophecy is always truth. It, it, always, it, it comes as a direct message from God. And it basically is a divine insight of what will be, or in other words, what will come. And if God said that, if God said this was prophecy, then you can be assured that it will happen. 
That's what separates the difference between true prophets and the Bible talks about false prophets. But this, when it comes from God directly, this is a prophecy. And so make note of that because we're going to come back to that. Now look at verse 24. When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So Rebecca got not only a baby, but a sweater for the winter. <laughs> There's a couple guys in here that are probably nicknamed uh, Esau. But, but Esau was hairy when he came out. Look at verse 26. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Now remember, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gives birth. Now the name Jacob actually that was given to the son, the second one that came out second out of the womb, um, who held on to his brother's heel, Jacob actually means heel catcher. And, and in the times it meant heel catcher, but what it meant back then, a heel catcher back in that day, it meant a trickster. It was like a con man. It was a rascal. It was a scoundrel. It was somebody who wasn't always honest, and he was always up to kind of like shady things, right? And so this name Jacob really wasn't a compliment, but because he was holding on to his brother's heel, um, that's why they named him Jacob. Now look at verse 27. It said, The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, which is the boy's dad, remember, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You might want to underline that. Because this statement right here is the very point of where dysfunction is going to enter into the family. Now, I don't think that, that this, state, this, this last uh, text says that, that Rebecca didn't like both boys or love both boys. It doesn't mean that the dad didn't love both boys, but you do get a sense that from this text that they had favorites. Could we agree on that? Now, obviously, the boys were very different. But Esau was more of an outdoorsman. He hunt, he probably fished, he was probably good with his hands. He was a man's man. And dad related to him, and he enjoyed the wild game his son caught. He was a proud dad, no doubt. And we see that Isaac loved him. He was very close to his son. They probably shared a lot in common. And we see also that Jacob was quite the opposite. It says, the text says that he stayed at home. So one can probably think that if he stayed at home near the tents, he was, he was probably with his mom a lot, and he was in much fellowship with her. So she obviously became very close to him. You could kind of see how that happens. And so we see that there's proof in verse 29 how different these brothers are. Look at 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, so he's home, he's, he's probably doing the cooking with his mom, learned how to cook. Esau came from where? 
He came from the open country, and he was famished. So we see that these boys are distinctly different. Now let me ask you a question, those of you that had kids. Were your children exactly the same, or did God give you complete opposites? Yeah, is that pretty true? I mean, those of you that had multiple kids, um, yeah, they gave opposites. So the question is, you definitely saw opposites. Could be their personality, could be their, their, their hobbies, could be their, you know, whatever they have, but they were definitely different. And now I have two boys, and I will agree with you, they are completely as opposite as well. And so my youngest son, Dawson, well, let's just say he's strong-willed. Was that a good way of putting it? And let me tell you, he has a mind of his own. He challenges us. And you know what they say about strong-willed kids? They're going to be great leaders when they finally get it together, right? And so they're going to be strong. They're going to be good leaders. And so I got, one lady said to me, God blesses you with a strong-willed kid. And I go, I don't feel too blessed right now. <laughs> How many of you have had strong-willed kids? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And so they definitely, they're the ones that aren't going to really sway too far if they follow that, that, uh, the way God made them and wired them. They're not going to be intimidated. They're kind of going to be the trendsetter. They don't care what people think. They're pretty solid in what they believe in. And when they latch on to something, they're going to be good at it. And so, um, but the other son of mine, Rylan, he's our oldest son. He's very different. Um, he's very loving. He's very loyal. He's gentle. Um, he, he loves music. He plays guitar. And, he, and I would say in general, he, he really does please, please. He wants to please us. That's his nature. He's loving and he wants to please mom and dad. And so they're completely opposite. And think about your kids, how opposite they are, right? But however, what I want you to know is that my wife and I love our children equally. Don't you love your children equally? Yeah, they can be different, but you love them the same. Now, my boys often accuse me and, and my wife from time to time of loving more the, you know, one more than the other, but that's simply not the case. How many of you were accused of the same parental crime by your kids? Let me see your hands. Yeah. And you know how they work the system, right? If, it, if it, it's to their advantage, they'll work the system. Well, you love her more, or you love him more. And, and so, you know, we laugh about that. But the scripture describes a very different picture of Isaac's family, I believe. And we're going to see that each parent had pledged love for one son over the other. And so I'm going to point out tonight four dysfunctions, four dysfunctions in this family, okay? So dysfunction number one, you see it up on the screen. I want you to notice what causes this family to wind up where they're at. Dysfunction number one, parents introduced partiality or favoritism towards their children. Now, some of you know this story. Now, it appears that that's not what's happening but as we go through the story, you're going to realize that's exactly what happened. And so the parents already kind of set this, this, this situation where it was very clear to not only the boys, but to the parents that there was a divide here. And this is dysfunction number one. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about growing up. Maybe perhaps you're here and you even think this, but there are 
there are things that we deal with as adults if you grew up in a home where you didn't feel loved. And I want to speak to you about that. Your parents loved you, but maybe they didn't know how to show love to you, or maybe they didn't have time, or maybe they felt closer. And there's so many different scenarios, but I want to open up the idea that some of you, maybe you had, you know, I've seen parents and we've counseled many parents where, you know, one kid is, is disabled. And so the parents would spend more time with them. And then if you were the sibling of that person, then what would happen is you kind of felt like you didn't get paid attention to, therefore you didn't feel loved. Or what about the child or what, a, what a, maybe one of your siblings was constantly getting into trouble and they figured out that if I get in trouble and I'm bad, then I'll get mom and dad's attention and here you are doing all the right things, doing what you're supposed to be doing. You were a good kid, but you never got attention. And maybe I'm speaking to someone tonight Or maybe mom and dad sent your sibling to college, but they didn't do it for you. You get you following me. And so you know that maybe you have found yourself in that situation, but I want to remind you that your parents loved you. But for some reason, sometimes when we grow up with that kind of childhood and we get into adulthood and we've learned this in counseling, if that's you... I want to point out some things that can manifest in your adult life from from favoritism. If that's you and you've experienced it, maybe some of you have a legitimate case. You were beaten, you were abused, and you were the only one. Maybe your siblings weren't. And here's some of the things. This is why we as parents need to understand how important it is that we, that we pay attention to what would cause dysfunction in our family because dysfunction will be in your house until the kids move out, but then as they become adults, they, they have to deal with these things if they truly feel this. And so I want you to, I'm just going to kind of share some things as adults that we would experience, and maybe that's you, but I want you to recognize this. Then we can identify and work through that. Some of the things, the effects of, of um, favoritism or neglect is um, depression, anxiety, maybe anger towards your parents, maybe unforgiveness, maybe you experience trouble having healthy or personal adult relationships, maybe you have performance anxiety because you felt that if you performed and you made something of yourself and you brought home that trophy that they, your parents would be proud of you, And so you go through life with performance anxiety. You're constantly trying to please people. You have have difficulty with other adult relationships. You have self-esteem issues. Maybe you deal with feelings of rejection or inadequacy. Maybe you have feelings of neglect. Or maybe on the other side of things, you're very competitive and you're very independent, and your attitude is, I don't need anybody. I just have me, and I'm good with that. You've isolated yourself so that you don't get hurt or so that you don't relive those memories that you've had with your parents. Maybe you thrive on attention. Maybe you seek affirmation from everyone around you. You constantly need to be told that you're good at something or that you're, you're appreciated. But I want you to understand that some of these things that develop as an adult can be triggered back to our childhood. And this is why we say that this is sometimes it creates uh, dysfunction in the family as your upbringing. 
But what I want to encourage you tonight is, is that if that's you and you fit in that category, and I don't have time tonight to tell my testimony, some of you know it, but you've, you are, the Bible says that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And maybe, maybe when you give your life to Christ, and some of you came to Christ through your pain, through your upbringing, and then Christ got a hold of you, and then everything changed, didn't it, church? And you're a new creation. And the things of the old are gone and the new has come in you. And and it's a great time to remember that you may have had that past, but that God has given you a whole new life, a spiritual life. You're a new creation and and you're a son and Jesus Christ is your father. He's your parent and he won't hurt you and he will love you no matter what. And you don't have to perform. And here's the key about when we go back to families, and some of you are parents, so this is important for you. But most parents, they don't even realize that they show favoritism, or maybe they're even in denial because they don't see what they're doing. But if you survey most parents, they believe that they love all their kids equally, but their actions may look very different to the children. And maybe the children just don't speak up. Or they feel that it's useless to have that conversation. And so when we talk about this kind of dysfunction that we see in this story, I want to give you a dysfunction, but then I want to give you a solution to the dysfunction. And it's up on the screen. I call taking dysfunction out of the family. It's for short, T-D-O-O-F. Can you say that with me? To-doof. So when you see that, just say to-doof. So I'm going to give you a to-doof of how to deal with that. Here's how you deal with that kind of dysfunction. Maybe it's even in your home today or you've been accused of that. Talk to your children often. Listen to them closely. Ask them questions and develop an openness and honesty in your home. And be okay with their answers. Sometimes kids will push you a little too far and they'll say, well, you don't love me anymore because they wanted to get their own way. And I think God gives us just a special dose of discernment and wisdom during those times right parents but then there are some times where your child really does feel that you don't love them or you don't even like them and so how do we overcome that dysfunction we need to talk to our kids we need to have an open honest conversation and when you do and they tell you something that you don't want to hear you don't defend yourself you listen to them You have that open. You make them feel, and then whatever the enemy put in their mind, or maybe you intentionally didn't know you were doing it, but they felt that way. That's how you avoid dysfunction. Now look at verse verse 29, but before we go there, here's what I put. Reassure that your children know that you do love them for how God has made them. You know what you know what we do now now that my boys are teenagers? We celebrate the differences in them. And how we do that with boys because we're always joking with each other, we laugh and make fun of each other all the time. Uh, my son will say something to me like you're fat, you're bald, and I'll go you're broke. And you're about to be homeless. <laughs> and we have fun. We have fun with our differences. And sometimes that's all it takes is for, the, for your kids, they, they make fun of each other, and then they see the parents doing that in a healthy, joyful way. And, and it's saying to them, hey, you are different, but we accept you, we love you, and God created you with that difference. You, you get where I'm at? 
have fun with that. And I don't think you can do that with eight or 12 year olds, but teens, you know, if you've been through teens, you know you can do that. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished, and he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he also was called Edom. I don't have time to go into that, but look at verse 31. Jacob replied, sell me your birthright. Now, here's the scoundrel at work. He was named appropriately. Sell me your birthright. Well, first, what was a birthright back in these days? See, a birthright, it was custom that the firstborn son was given the birthright of the family. What does that mean? And that's when the, when the dad would pass. What does that mean? Well, it meant that the first son would receive a double portion of his father's inheritance and he also became the head of the family and the spiritual leader upon the passing of the father. Later on in, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, God speaks of this birthright later and he describes that and that was customary for the families to do that. Now look at verse 32. Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Now I'm not Esau, but I think this statement means simply that he really does believe that, that his father is going to outlive him. And so if he really believed that, that his father would outlive him, then the birthright meant nothing to him. Because of his father, you know, if, if, if he dies before his dad, who cares if he gets the inheritance? And this is what he's saying to his brother. So he's hungry. He's saying, I don't really care about my birthright. Third, verse 33, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and then he got up and left. And so we see here that, that Jacob really doesn't give any accreditation to his birthright, which would come from his father. And he had no respect for it, his inheritance, and he considers it worthless. And what we see in verse 31 through 34, we see this fulfillment of the prophecy that I asked you to underline a little bit earlier. Because what actually happened was what God told Rebekah is what just happened between the boys, but only between the boys. But God fulfilled that prophecy and the boys took care of that. And he said, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. You're going to see when the dad blesses him at the end of chapter, or chapter 27, you're going to see what that means. And so we'll look at that. Now we know that God was correct in choosing Jacob over Esau. Remember, God knows everything. God's all-knowing. God has planned every single number of your days. He says he knew you before you were formed in, in your mother's womb. He's called you. He's called you by name. So God is all-knowing. He's omnipotent. And so what, what God was correct in choosing Jacob over Esau to carry the birthright even though Jacob was a younger brother and went against, against custom. But the book of Hebrews says something very interesting. Look what the author said in the book of Hebrews. It's up on the screen. Chapter 12, verse 16. He says, See that no one is as sexually immoral or as godless like who? 
That's the Esau that they're talking about. Who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. That's a pretty powerful statement. Now, did God know that? And God says, Esau, you're not going to be the spiritual leader of this family. Jacob's going to be. Yeah, Jacob's got some flaws. He's imperfect. He's a little shady. But Esau, you did some things you shouldn't have done. We're going to explain why. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 26 real quick. Genesis 26, the next chapter. And scoot down to verse 34. Why did Hebrews author say this about Esau? Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, so he was single until then, he married Judith's daughter, Abari the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Verse, uh, verse 35, they were a source of grief to who? Isaac and Rebekah. Hold on a minute. Shouldn't parents be excited when their son finally gets married at 40 years old? They should. But the scripture says that it brought much grief to the parents. Why? Do you remember what Abraham's desire was? I already told you tonight. That his sons would not yoke themselves with any women living in Canaan. That was Abraham's desire, including his generation's to come. And Esau, when he married these Hittites, when he married them, he went against the pattern established by Abraham. And, and so he went against it. Now understand, the Hittite women were considered heathens of Canaan because of their ungodly ways. Why? Because they involved themselves in false god worshiping and idolatry. They also were known to be adulterers. They were kind of like the prostitutes in Canaan. The Hittite women, many of them were prostitutes. Not only that, but the other reason why Esau's parents were not too happy about it is because it says, look in the text, not only did he marry one woman, church, but he married two women. You see, his brother married one from the hometown and obeyed Abraham and his dad. But not Esau. Esau was greedy. He goes, I want two women. And the reason why is because the practice in Canaan was that there was multiple, multiple wives. That's not, that's not how God wanted that. But he picked up the godless culture that he was living in. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. And this is where we're going to see dysfunction implode this family. In fact, they're probably going to be on Jerry Springer. <laughs> Let's start in, in verse 1. Genesis 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old, so we know we've gone a few more years now in between chapters, and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, Esau said, Here I am. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know 
the day of my death. Now, it's important to know that Isaac is about 137 years old at this time. And, and we can tell from the scriptures that he's, he's experiencing like a blindness. His eyesight's really bad. He can't even see anymore. He probably can't even see light, maybe a little bit of light. But he can't tell who's around him or identify anything. And so he's probably thinking that, well, my eyesight's going bad, so I must be near death. He's probably not feeling good. And so we see that his dad wants to get his affairs in order. And so verse 3, look what it says. Now then, get your equipment, get your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, here's the interesting thing about this story. I want you to think about this. Obviously, Isaac did not know that Esau already gave his birthright years ago to his younger brother, Jacob. Isn't it interesting that he forgot to tell his dad that? Oh, by the way, dad, when you die, I don't get your birthright and your blessing. My younger brother does. He didn't tell his father that. And so there's deception. And there's no indication that Esau tells his dad this. And to make matters worse and add to the dysfunction of this family, look what the mom Rebecca does in verse 5. Let's read it. Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son, her son, her son, see my favorite, said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. And so what we can also get from this story in this text is that we can gather that Rebecca's concern is, is, is that she didn't even know this deal was made between the two brothers. So Jacob didn't tell his mom that this deal happened. You see the deception. You see the secrecy that's, that's in this family. Nobody's communicating. Nobody knows what's going on. Everything's a secret. And she had no idea that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And so we also see here that Rebecca now has gone behind her husband and she's conjuring up a completely different story than her husband. She's not even honoring her husband. There's nothing in this verse that says that she even told her husband what she's going to do. So she's doing this behind her husband's back because she has a different motive. Now look at verse 8. Now my son, this is Rebecca talking to her favorite Jacob, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Verse 11, and, and her son Jacob said back to his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man. While I have smooth skin, what if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Now, here's what I love about Jacob's heart. The fact that he said that he might receive a curse means that he has a, a reverential fear for God because he realizes that his mom has just asked him to do something 
against his own father. And he knows that God says, children, you are to obey your parents. So he's kind of caught in the middle. I want to obey my mom, but I don't want to sin against God and lie to my dad. You see, that, you see how this, this son's put in the middle of things between these two parents and what's going on here. Verse 13, look what his mother says to him. My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Which brings us to dysfunction number two in this family. Secrecy, miscommunication, and division within the family is actually considered normal to them. I want to let that sink in. You see, something as important as a birthright was a big deal to families back then. It was a way that God made sure that the family would not sin against him and that they would not go to other gods. And God chose a son of that family, the older son except for this one. And God chose that someone else would be the spiritual leader to lead that family. And this was very, very important. It actually protected the family. And we see a family that is absolutely denying God's plans and God's provision to keep them together as a godly family. The boys never told their parents that Esau gave his birthright to Jacob. Even though Esau despised his birthright and his position in his family, we know that he married pagan wives. We know that the dad insisted on giving Esau the birthright despite the fact that God chose the other son over Jacob. You know, if God spoke a prophecy to the wife, Rebecca, I would think that she would share that with her husband, wouldn't you? Because when God speaks prophecy, you know it. Those of you that God's spoken to, you would share that with your spouse. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. The story doesn't tell it. But if she did, even the dad is not listening to God. And he's still going forth against God to meet tradition and culture. We also see in the story that mom and dad are divided on decisions for the family. They operate in secrecy against each other. They plot with the children and include the children into taking sides. The kids are caught in the middle. Jacob had the opportunity to tell Rebecca that he already has a birthright given to him by Esau. He could have told his mom that and resolved everything. It would have been over right then and there. So Jacob's not innocent here in his family either. Some could say that maybe the birthright was not for Esau to give away, but only the father's. That would explain some things. That's not how this story is going to pan out. But do you see, church, the deception and disunity in this story? And how this is going to unravel the family dynamics? But I want to give you a solution. Can you say T-doof? T-doof. How do we take the dysfunction out of this family? We need to communicate with transparency by keeping nothing hidden from each other. And parents need to work at being in unity in all matters of the family.
You know, if the parents would have been in uni and had open conversation, this probably would have never happened. Do you see that? How are we doing in our own families? Now, don't sit here and feel guilty because this spoke to me. My wife and I don't agree on everything. And when kids become teenagers, you don't agree on a lot of things. And that's what's interesting is sometimes the teenagers try to isolate mom against dad. And they say, well, mom said, but mom really didn't say that. Right? You've been there? Come on. You've been there? You know. Yeah. But what's important as parents is that you and your spouse 100% support each other at all costs. Because if if you're in unity about everything, all the family matters, that stops everything right there, doesn't it? It just stops right there. I put it this way, secrets, no matter how small, can undermine trust that is established within family members. It's much easier to forgive someone than to begin to trust them all over again, isn't it? See, once we lose our trust, it's hard to regain it. Maybe once, yeah. Maybe twice, yeah. But if it's consistent, it's hard to trust again. It takes work. Luke 8, 17 says, and we're reminded, for there is nothing hidden that would not be disclosed and nothing concealed that would not be known or brought out into the open. You know, eventually the secrets will be exposed. And so I propose that we just keep it honest and, we, and we, we voice our concerns. We have that dialogue. It's okay to be on different views. It's okay to be on different pages. Grandparents, I'm talking to you too. Some of you have kids that are out of the house, but you, you're trying to intervene with dysfunction in your, in your kids' homes, aren't you? And the grandkids are caught in it. And you try to, you know, you're the godly grandparents. And you're trying to bring in scripture and maybe they don't want anything to do with God. And I know maybe that's some of you. So this lesson really is for everybody. This, this family is an example for everybody. You see, healthy relationships are defined by transparency and truth. How many of you feel you have a, I'm not talking about your spouse, I don't want any of that, but just friends and acquaintances. How many of you feel that you have a healthy friendship and an acquaintance? It's healthy and it's transparent. Let me see. How long have you had that relationship? A long time? Yeah. See, relationships last when you're transparent and truthful. Perhaps you've experienced a relationship that was severely damaged because of broken trust due to lies or secrecy. And it's hard to trust people in all our relationships if we've been hurt from deception. And it takes time to cover, to recover, and learn to trust again. Look at verse 14. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food for just the way his father liked it. And then Rebecca took the best clothes of, or of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son. She also covered his hands with smooth part of the neck with the goat skins. And then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and bread she had made. And he went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Now I'm going to expose four lies in this next dialogue that Esau, or that Jacob tells his dad. Lie number one is in verse 19. Jacob said to his father, I am who? I'm Esau, your firstborn. 
I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat. Here comes lie number two. Some of my game. Now, I don't know about you, but there's probably a difference between goat and deer. I mean, the dad actually is a, is a, you know, he likes meat and he likes, you know, Esau's hunt, right? There's wild game and then there's like goat. So there's probably a difference here, right? And we're going to see that, that dad here is like, I smell a rat here. Watch, watch what happens. But he lies again. Here's some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. See, he's trying, trying to drive it home. Like, hurry up and do this before I, I, I get found out here. Lie number three, the Lord your God. Oh, wait, verse 20, Isaac asked his son, how did you find the game so quickly, my son? Lie number three, and this is intense, the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Now he's bringing God into it. Verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. And Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he proceeded to bless him. Now you know that the father's in doubt. Look at verse 24. Are you really my son, Esau? He asked. And here's lie number four. I am, he replied. Dysfunction number three. Obedience to a parent required a son to sin against God. You see, Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 6 also says that there are six things that the Lord hates or detests. One is a lying tongue. See, our children are born with physical traits that resemble a physical likeness of our parents. But listen, behavioral traits are taught to our children and grandchildren by what we do and what we say in the home. Parents, our children watch everything that we do. When we have our children in our house, they emulate us. Some of your grandchildren, when you get them for the weekend, they emulate you. And you see them and you laugh, you see it. They observe everything that we do. Here's an example. I'm talking to parents right now with children's in your home. If we lie, they will lie. If we yell when we're mad, they will yell when they're mad. If we drink, they will drink. Men, if we spit on the ground, your boys will spit on the ground, just like you. I have a picture of me and my boys up on the screen. Props go out to Heather. Heather Stein here. She's a wonderful photographer. And it's interesting, you see me and my boys, that's my, uh, let me get this right, that's my oldest son on the right and my youngest on the left. 
You see, when I'm not here in church and I have to look holy, I don't wear hats in church. But when I'm outside of church, I wear a hat, right, Randy? I wear a hat. And then I, when I wear a hat, what do the boys do? They start buying hats. They start wearing hats. Then I grew a beard about three years ago. When I grew a beard, one grew a beard. One kept trying to grow a beard. And now he finally grew a beard. And his beard's looking pretty righteous, man. I mean, that's like, that's like Hank Williams Jr. sitting there, right? You see how our kids emulate us? Now, I'm talking to the dads in the room right now. Dads, your boys watch everything they do. They look up to you. They emulate you. Let me ask you a question. Parents are either influencing children and grandchildren for the good or for the bad. How are you influencing your children right now, parents? Is there anything that you might need to change in your parenting? You see, Rebecca was part of this dysfunction in the family by asking her son to lie to her husband. You see, she was a bad influence on her son. She taught her son how to lie and deceive her husband, another parent. I have it up on the screen. I want to give you a solution. Say, T-Doof. T-Doof. How do we take dysfunction out of the family? Parents need to lead their children in the ways of the Lord by teaching them. But listen, more importantly, by living out the principles they teach as examples. Parents learn more by watching you than what you say. It's just the truth. And as I say this, some of you might be feeling a little condemned because you know that you blow it as parents sometimes. Guess what? I do too. In fact, I blew it last night. I yelled at my wife and I yelled at my son at 11 o'clock at night. I did, didn't I? Honey? You forgot. Now they don't believe me. Did I yell at you last night at 11 o'clock? Okay. I blew it. I blew it. What did my son witness? Something stressful came up. He saw me yell at my wife. He saw me yell at him. So if you're sitting here and you think, man, I blew it. I can't live up to this. Relax. This is why we're all here to learn and teach. We're all doing life. We're looking at God's word and we're getting better day by day, aren't we? That's the whole goal. Glory to glory, day to day, we're conformed more to the image of God. That's why we're here. We're not here to be religious. We're here to learn. I'm learning with you, amen? Amen. You don't have perfect pastors in this church. You want perfect pastors? I don't know where to send you, but... (laughs) But we need to be transparent. We need to recognize where we need to grow and learn and then take God's word and grow, amen? It's what we do. When we do blow it, though, we need to apologize. I apologized to my wife today. I asked her, I said, I'm sorry for yelling at you. She said, thank you. But you know what? When we blow it and we apologize and we let our kids see us apologize, You know, that's part of teaching them how to do life right. They see you as parents being humble, walking in humility, recognizing how to solve problems, 
in relationships when things go south. And children today, listen to me, children today don't crave perfection. They crave realness from the family and from the parents. Be authentic parents, church. Be authentic parents that speak truthfully in all occasions. Look at verse 25. Then Isaac the father said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, remember Rebecca is very strategic at lying. He's wearing his brother's clothes from the hunt. When he smelled his clothes, that was a triple hitter. He, he thought, okay, this is Esau. And he blessed him and said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And here's the blessing Jacob lied to his father to inherit. Verse 28, listen what dad says. This is what a blessing is. May God give you the heaven's dew and the earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your what? Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you and may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. Uh Uh-oh. He too prepared tasty food and brought it to his father. And then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father asked, Isaac asked him, Who are you? His father, I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Look at verse 33. You want to see pain in the father? Isaac trembled violently. And he said, Who was it then? that hunted game and brought it to me. I ate it just before you came in, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's words, here comes the pain of the son. He burst out with a loud and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Verse 36, Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. I want to stop for a moment. We see that Jacob and Rebekah are not the only liars in the family. But you know what? Esau didn't tell the whole truth. Esau knew the deal that he made with his brother, so he's not really telling the whole truth to his father. Esau agreed to it, and he enjoyed that meal. I would have never taken that deal, but who knows how long he was out on the hunt, and who knows how good of a cook Jacob was. But he mutually agreed. Look at the rest of verse 36. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you. And I have made all his relatives and servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. 
And then Esau wept out loud. You know what, church? I can relate to this part of the story. I don't have time to tell you. But this weeping, this is a broken heart of a son who loved his dad and a dad who loved his son who was deceived by dysfunction in their family. It was very painful. We're going to see how painful it really is as we close up this story. Verse 39, his father Isaac answered him, your dwelling will be away from the earth's riches, away from the dew of the heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will what? You will serve your brother. There's another part. You can just underline that. Just put prophecy fulfilled. There's the prophecy fulfilled that God gave Rebecca when the boys were in her womb. But when you grow restless, he said, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Look at verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will what? I will kill Jacob. Don't you worry about it. I'll kill my brother when you die, Dad. Last dysfunction I want you to see up on the screen. A family that allows chaos and ungodly behavior to sneak in is a family that will experience pain, hurt, unforgiveness, and disunity. You notice two times the older brother Esau was so deeply hurt by his younger brother that he deeply wept. He experienced the pain and rejection of his father whom he loved, and he experienced the loss of a blessing. And Esau at this point doesn't even know that his mom betrayed him as well. Notice that. He don't even know that his mom was a part of this. How do you think he's going to feel when he figures out his mom was in on this against him? Not only one parent, but now rejected by two. When we're deeply hurt, it oftentimes leads to unforgiveness. And if we stay with unforgiveness, it leads us to anger. And if we stay angry, it leads to hatred. What were the last words of Esau? I will kill my brother. You know, Jesus said something interesting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but what? Hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. And it's sad to say, church, but because of Esau's unforgiveness towards his brother, he will suffer for many many years how you see the end of this part of the story is how Esau will live the next 20 years in that pain and that hate and that anger and that rejection and so this leads me to ask every single person a question whether you're here or listening online have you forgiven your relatives from the hurts you received from the past Only you can answer that. And I I bet I'm talking to a couple people in this room. Because I had to go through that myself. You're going to want to come back next week 
because we're going to learn how to take the dysfunction out of our hardened hearts if you've been hurt in a family situation. There's, there's a good ending to this story. There's restoration, I promise you. Last, last solution. It's up on the screen. Say, T-Doof. How do we take the dysfunction out of the family? In order to experience godly, healthy family, leadership must start with the husband and wife submitting to each other and submitting to God. When I look at this story, if I'm going to be Dr. Phil, and I'm going to have them sitting on my show, and I'm going to do a panel, and I got all this information about how dysfunctional that they are, and they show up on my set, right? Here's what I'm going to say. How's that working for you? (laughs) But I truly believe that had Esau and Jacob discussed with their parents what happened between them early on, much of this would have never happened. There wouldn't have been a blessing to fight over. I'm sure the dad would be a little bit upset. You did what? But then Rebecca would have spoke up in honesty and said, God gave me that prophecy. Don't you remember? And it would have been the end of it. Transparency and truth right up front in the family. And I truly believe that if Isaac and Rebecca would have discussed their indifferences as to who should get the father's blessing, if they both would have come to a unified decision after much prayer, much of the hurt, anger, and chaos would have been resolved. And church, I really believe that God has a heart for every family that's represented in this room or listening online. God's heart is for every family to know Him. God's heart is for every family to love Him. And God's heart is for every family to obey Him. And if we do these three things, then God's Word says that we would be blessed because of it. We can't change our past, can we? Some of you have kids that are gone. My whole point of talking about this tonight is not to make you feel guilty because truth be said, I could fast forward 20 years, I could sit in here and hear a pastor and I'd probably feel pretty guilty and I'd probably feel condemned. But I want to say a prayer because I really believe that this story is given to us so that we can look at our own personal lives. Maybe it's our relationship with our parents if they're still alive. Maybe it's our relationship with our siblings. But maybe there's some relationships that each of us carry, and we have a hard heart. And maybe you're estranged with your siblings, your aunt, whatever. And I believe that this story is given to us so that we can take a look at it. And the question is, do we want to remain in pain and imprisoned in our hurt any longer? And so if you allow me and you bow your heads... I'm going to pray and we're going to close. I'm going to pray over each and every person. Father, you know each and every person here tonight. God, you know the, you know the relationships that are fractured. Lord, you know some people really do identify with favoritism from their parents. And Lord, maybe their parents never meant to do that, but they feel that way and they've never been able to get away from it. Lord, I pray that you would restore them. I pray that you would heal them. I pray that your Holy Spirit, as the Heavenly Father, that you would be their daddy, that you would provide everything that they need, affection, affirmation, healing. God, I pray for all the parents in this room tonight. I pray that if... 
Maybe the Holy Spirit tapped them on the shoulder a couple of times. I pray that they would go home. I pray that after they tuck the kids in the bed tonight or tomorrow morning or this weekend, that they would sit down and go, you know, that teaching really impacted me. There's some things that we need to talk about. We need to be more truthful. We need to work at being more in unity. And so, God, we trust that your Holy Spirit spoke through your word tonight. We pray that there be a healing in the areas that need to be healed in each and every person. And Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful. Lord, I personally thank you that as much as as much of a dysfunctional home that I grew up in, your word shows a story of real people with real issues. And I believe that you were intentional that when the Holy Spirit spoke the scripture and told these stories, that it was given to us so that we could learn and grow. And I'm personally thankful that I can identify and I can move forward in a way that you want me to move forward. And for each and every person, that's our prayer and that's our belief. Lord, we lift you up. We worship you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for each and every person that walked in here. Bring them back next week if you need to as we continue to learn in the book of Genesis, the beginning of you, God. And it's in Jesus' name and everyone said. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of Intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 1045 a.m., and Wednesdays at 630 p.m.